Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. My guest today is Emma Murray, founder of High Performance Mindfulness, a company that uses psychology, mindfulness, and meditation to help people perform to the best of their abilities. Most notably, she has gained widespread recognition for her pivotal role in guiding the Richmond Football Club through their last three premierships. Much to my dismay, of course. (laughs) Seven years ago, Emma's mindfulness training really had to come into play when her eldest son, Will, had an accident that left him a quadriplegic. So what do you do as a parent when you know that your teenage son will never walk again? How do you look him in the eyes? How do you tell him that? And then how do you pick up the pieces and continue to parent, not just for your son, but for your other three children? Emma, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Prior to his accident, can you paint a picture for us? Tell me about your life, your family, and about your son, Will. So Will is one of four children and, you know, our life, when you introduced the podcast just then and said that you're with experts, I was an expert of a mother of chaos and (laughs) dizziness and, you know, all of the kids played a lot of sports. So uh, Will particularly was in rep basketball, rep football, rep soccer, BMX racing. So our life prior to Will's accident was just survival through the busyness of of young kids and houses that were too small and not enough money and not <laughs> enough time, all of those things that every parent goes through. That is what our world looked like. Um, you know, two weeks prior to Will's accident, we were determined to actually have our very first overseas holiday and we went to Thailand and I remember so often in Thailand thinking, what are we doing? This is like the same busy stuff, chaos, just in a new location. New location. <laughs> and I remember specifically on the flight home from Thailand, Will, who already at 13 years old was, you know, big, strong kid. He was already built like a man. And he wanted to sleep and he was lying across me with his legs on me that were like a dead weight. <laughs> And, you know, I had other kids wanting things. I'm sure every parent listening knows when you're on an overseas holiday with young kids, it's like, what am I doing when you're on that plane trip? Yeah, is it, is it a holiday? Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> and, you know, the dad's asleep and you're awake <laughs> managing it all. And uh, I remember being so frustrated and, and cross and really resentful that Will's legs were on my body and I couldn't move because of this heavy weight on my body. And I remember after his accident thinking, I would give anything to have those legs just working and him being able to put them on me. And, you know, it was a real moment that I go back to often around pre-accident and just being this parent who's so trapped in the busyness and the frustration that you don't stop to actually see, wow, like my child can move his legs and jump off cliffs in Thailand and we can go overseas as a, as a family. So, Do yeah. you think you need to go through a form of hardship in order to have that mentality, that way of thinking? Um, 
You know, that's a really interesting question. You know, hardship for me as a parent came long before Will's accident. We sort of have two children, then a gap, and, and then another two younger children. And that gap between our kids was because we had a stillborn. We, we were pregnant with twins and, and lost the first twin at 12 weeks and then delivered the, the stillborn twin at about 27, 28 weeks. And, you know, that brings an enormous amount of grief and loneliness and uh, challenge. But I remember when I had my third child, the difference in me as a parent up at night and sleep deprived, there was this level of just peace in actually having this baby in my arms. And I think prior to having a stillborn baby, I was one of those people that could fall pregnant easily, could deliver a baby with no pain relief, super easy, you know, and it just came. And I never stopped to really appreciate what having a child was and and how I I don't like using that word gratitude because it was different to just oh I'm grateful I've got this baby it was an appreciation yeah, for it's what a deeper understanding yeah it's this understanding of what life means and what it actually takes to have a child that is well and that a child who actually makes it into your arms so I think that experience enabled me to drop into that a lot more. I don't believe that then meant when I was in the busyness and the chaos, I was a better parent because of it. It just meant in those still moments, I had an appreciation for what I had more. How do you, how can you, if possible, explain to parents when they are, like you said, awake at two in the morning, they're sort of pulling their hair out, they're frustrated, angry, tired. How can you almost convince parents to be happy, to be grateful, to have that understanding without having to go through a child's illness or a stillbirth or some sort of tragedy to have an appreciation. Mm. Can you? I don't know that you can. I just think that's part of the human journey that we're on and that person's journey is their journey and my journey is my journey. And as I said, like when you fall pregnant so easily and the delivery is so easy, it's just like, well, this is the most easy given thing that happens to everyone. You know, you have no perspective. And I think part of the human experience is the ups and the downs and the grief and the, and the challenges. And I think sometimes... We don't, in mindfulness, there's a beautiful saying that you don't know what light is if you've never experienced the darkness. Mm. And I think you can't explain to someone what light is. You can't try and describe that to someone. You can't get them to appreciate that until they have experienced the darkness. And, you know, you don't want people to experience the darkness. And darkness doesn't have to be a stillborn or quadriplegia. It, you know, it can be something... I don't think there's a measure of darkness that it's like you have to go to that depths before you can experience lightness. But I think it's a journey that people have to go on on their so own. Do you think that grief is a gift for some? Oh, gosh. It's a pretty shitty gift. Yeah. <laughs> but what, I mean, yeah, all, all too I, often on this podcast, I have people sitting across from me who say to me, whatever trauma we're talking about, they say to me, 
it's the greatest thing that ever happened? Yes. I want to say two things around that. I think the when you lose a child in utero, for me, I can only speak from my experience, is one of the most lonely griefs you will ever experience because the mother, you were the one that felt the baby inside of you. You had a connection to the baby that no one else had. And I found that grief extraordinarily lonely. Um, I felt like I really couldn't find the right support with that grief. I don't think I was able to get the lessons I needed from that grief. I was quite young and, as I said, I just thought children were a given and I didn't have the capacity to work through that grief. But then when it came to Will's accident, I wouldn't say that it was a gift, but what I say to people all of the time is, and and maybe if I really did the healing work around the stillborn, I would get to this point as well, that I would give it back, but I would keep the lessons. Yeah. If only. So maybe the grief isn't the gift, but the lessons in that grief are the gift. Let's fast forward to Will at the age of 14 Mm -hmm. and that day at the beach with friends. Talk me through what happened. Oh, like it's etched in my mind, as I'm sure anyone that has been through trauma has that etched in their mind. Um, It was a sunny Sunday and Will was... 13-year-old boy, he pushed boundaries. You were frustrated with them more than you were happy with them. He asked to go to the beach with friends. He was at that age. It was a local beach. We knew everyone, we know everyone in our local community. So it was probably the first summer where they were able to go to the beach by themselves. They're really strong swimmers and there's a local pier. They were going down to the pier. Um, Will's father drove him to the beach and dropped him off and got home. We live maybe 10 minutes from the beach and pretty much got home and straight away got a phone call from Will saying, can you come and pick me up? And Will being a child that pushes your buttons, pushes the boundaries, you know, you find yourself as a lot of parents do in a constant state of frustration. Mm. Oh gosh, Will, like we've just dropped you down there. And what was his reason for wanting to leave? Oh, who would know? I don't even know. I think probably the people that he thought were there, were not there, but there were a few of them. They obviously just had a quick change in plans. I was in my office cleaning out my office. It was January, um, getting ready for the, the new work work year. And and Nick, his father, was like, oh, bloody Will, you know, <laughs> uh, he can wait. And so he just finished what he was doing and he drove to the beach. And I'm still cleaning out my office and... Sometime later, our neighbour, whose son is a good friend of Will's, he came running into my office, was at the front of the house, and he came running in and he's speaking at a million miles an hour and he's asking me, you know, do I remember this girl at the primary school who, I can't remember her name, like let's say her name's Sally, do you remember Sally and, you know, remember Sally who went overseas and and she went overseas and then she came back and I'm looking at him and I'm saying, Harrison, like, I don't remember that girl, what are you talking about? And he's talking at a million miles an hour, he could hardly breathe. And he goes, well, well, Sally, you know, she just called me and there's been an accident at the beach with Will. And I was like, oh, okay. 
And as he said those words, my phone rang and it was Nick. And he said, there's been an accident on the beach. I said, I know, Harrison just told me. And he said, it's bad. And he was, dad was at the yeah. beach. And he said, it's bad. And I said, right. And he said, he can't move. He's in the ambulance going to the Royal Children's Hospital. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet you there. And I hung up and this level of calmness came over me like, like, okay, we're in for a big journey. Like I need to have my stuff together. Like I just knew immediately. And I knew my other two children, my younger two children were at a friend's house and I packed them a bag. Like I'm like, I'm going to have to pack them a bag. How did you have the clarity of thought? I have no idea. So I packed them a bag. I must have rung my parents. I don't remember ringing my parents to say, you know, that this has happened. I need to go to the hospital. And they came, we drove to where the little kids were and they were at a a friend's house who was a nurse and I explained to her and I remember her, oh, I should say, as I'm packing the bag, the phone rings and um, our house phone and no one rings a house phone. Why would I answer it? But I answer it. And this person from the local primary school is on the phone, a father, and he's saying, Emma, it's Michael here and I was at the beach and he at the time worked at Falls Creek, the the mountain, and he said, you know, that we have lots of people who, you know, I don't know what words he used. I don't think he used break their neck or anything. He said, we have lots of people and, you know, they get compensation and like he's obviously in a panic. He's obviously in shock and he's saying this to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. You <laughs> haven't know. even seen Will I haven't Will left yet. the house, right? And, and people are just in shock. Yeah. And, I mean, it's also understanding that Will was like this person in the community that was just so good at sport. And, and when you live in a local community, sport is a big thing. Mm. And everyone and, knows. And everyone knows. And Will was the kid that won the basketball final for them and won the football final for them and you know, was the strongest, fastest kid. So it wasn't a kid who had a small network. Mm. It was like everyone knew this kid. And so when I got to the the friend's house who was a nurse and I told her what was going on, she started saying things to me like, there can be spinal shock. It doesn't mean that that's permanent. So I obviously never heard of spinal shock. This is a whole new world. So I had that going around my head. And my parents and I drove to the Royal Children's Hospital in complete silence. And I was just going around in my head like... Are you speaking to Nick the whole time? No. I hadn't spoken to him since he was at the beach because he is in emergency with Will. And I don't know, maybe I didn't even think to speak to him. Because it sounds like you've found this incredible still within the storm. Yeah, And, uh, you know, I don't think that was my mindfulness practice. I think by nature, I'm a person that goes calm in emergencies, but I also had this deep knowingness that I needed to be calm. This wasn't a hysterics was not going to keep this. You weren't going to, what's it going to be like in 10 years? You weren't. No, I wasn't going to any of that. Because I'm all, I'm like you. Yeah. People always comment to me, you know, after a, an emergency situation at work, wow, you're so calm, you're so quiet, mm. how do you do it? And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm calm on the outside, 
But on the inside, it's a thousand kilometres an hour. Oh, I was a thousand kilometres an hour and it was more around the just running scenarios of please let it not be as bad as everyone thinks it is. Please let it not be as bad. And I, when I when I got to the hospital, I didn't want to see Will, which I just was like, I just don't know that I can. You know, I think the, the hardest thing for a parent is to process the pain of your child. And I was like, I'm not ready to see one of my children in them, a, a level of pain that, you know, is not... I've got four children and you hate seeing them with a broken bone or a cut knee, but I'm not ready for this. And when I went in and they came and, and, and by that stage I was sort of, you know, vomiting and diarrhea and, you know, just, I think my whole body was in shock and they said, you know, Will wants to see you. So I went in and it was like, I, I couldn't quite process that we had this child who was bigger and stronger and more talented than than anyone. And for 13 years, you had really worried about, you know, will he be drafted to the AFL and um, it, will he be tall enough for the AFL and will he be strong enough and... And then all of a sudden, you are in this deep praying that he is paraplegic and not quadriplegic, that he has his hands, you know, which I've never, I mean, I've never stopped to think about the difference between paraplegia and quadriplegia. Sorry, I don't ever talk about, you know, I don't ever talk about this day because some... Um, you know, it's awful. How rapidly your life focus can shift. Yeah. You know, in mindfulness, we talk about, I think every human's life is like they're in a storm. It's hard for everyone. Life is hard for everyone. Having, God, you know, it's bad when the producer brings in the tissues, (laughs) don't you? Gosh. Um, It's why I avoid talking about this. But I think for every human, Life is tough, like particularly with young kids. Like it's, I know we look at other families and we think we're the ones that have it harder, but every, it's hard having little kids. And as a parent, it's exhausting and it's, you know, expensive and there's fear and there's worry. And I always talk about that you, life is like this storm And every day we step out into the storm, we get knocked around and beaten around. And we come home again, wet and drenched and a bit beaten up. And we have to step out tomorrow and do it all again. And we just keep doing this. And for some people, sometimes in a moment, their life gets upgraded from a storm to a hurricane. Like literally in a moment, the kid gets diagnosed with cancer, our son breaks their neck, you know, someone else loses a child, you know, it just happens in an instant. And I think when your life gets upgraded to that hurricane, you all of a sudden have no choice but to find the stillness of that hurricane. It's like, I don't have a choice here. I can't just become hysterical and emotional and, you know, 
drop into fetal position, if I don't become still and calm, I'm not going to be able to survive. This storm's too bad. So I think in that moment when we're talking about I'm all of a sudden stressed, Am I, is my son going to be quadriplegic or is he going to be paraplegic rather than is he going to be drafted to the AFL mm. or is he going to be tall enough to play college basketball? It, it just has this deep sense of um, calmness as a survival mechanism to it. And it's so surreal. It's really difficult to explain to people. What were the first words that you said to each other when you walked into the room? I don't think we said anything. I think there was just a... I don't think we really said anything. Was Um, he in pain? He was in shock when I first went into the emergency room. So he was just sort of shivering and he was cold and he didn't really say much and we, we didn't know what it was at that stage. They haven't done MRIs. So you approach it like, oh, hey, Will, you know, hang in there. You're doing a good jo- job like any parent would in that situation. But walking to get the MRI to determine whether your son will walk again or not and by this stage it was after hours so we were the only people in the corridors and that was like, this is just madness. Like a few hours ago, I'm cleaning out my office on a sunny Sunday morning and now I'm walking down a hallway to get an MRI to tell me whether my son is paraplegic, quadriplegic or spinal shock. But we really knew it wasn't spinal shock by then. There's tests they do and you just look at the doctor's faces to know, you know, that it's, it's not good. And how were you given the result of the MRI? Who spoke to you? Do you know, I have no recollection of that. I have, a, I have a very strong recollection of walking down the hallway to the MRI and it was my mum and dad and Nick and I and we stood. I, I stopped them all and I said, whatever happens here, we have to make a pact that we will never turn on each other. This doesn't become about us turning on each other. We just do what needs to be done and we sort of went. I have no recollection of the MRI. My next sort of memory is Will being wheeled into surgery that night and he made a joke about being the first Paralympian in in the family, um, which... I love that. Yeah, right? Like, how crazy. And it's probably now that I understand and I have obviously interacted more with people with a spinal cord injury that young people just have so much faith that adults have the answers, that adults are going to fix things, that they can sort of joke, but that there's also, like at that moment, Will is not thinking he's going to be, never walk again. That's not what he's processing. He's just sort of making a joke about the situation because really this, you know, mum and dad always fix everything that goes wrong. So there's a blessing in him being 13 that he has that innocence when he was injured. But then the downside of that is that most people with spinal cord injury are in their 20s and they've learned to be independent and they've learned, you know, look after themselves and have jobs. And so when that's taken from them, they know what they're missing and they strive to get that back. Mm. And it's, 
you know, when people say, well, Will's got to be more independent than he is. It's like he never learned how to do that. It's very... Never had that opportunity. He never had that opportunity. So he sort of doesn't know what he's trying to get back to. It's, it, yeah, so there was pros and cons of both. So what were you told from a purely medical point of view? What were you told by doctors in terms of his injury, the spinal cord level, and what that meant for Will long-term? Yeah. So we were told that he had fractured the C5, C6 vertebrae and that it was a complete spinal cord injury. So there's a difference between complete and incomplete. I, uh, you know, Will had been in the hospital for like two months and a beautiful friend of ours, a chiropractor, Dr. Jessie Askew, she came in and she said, Will, do you actually understand your injury? He's like, no, I don't. And how she explained it was that if there's a five-lane highway, that when that bone fractured, it pressed against some of those lanes and those lanes got crushed. Now, um, a complete injury is where like five lanes got crushed, whereas a, an incomplete injury, maybe two lanes got crushed. So maybe some messages around feeling or movement are getting through. Um, so Will was diagnosed with a complete C5, C6 spinal cord injury. They can't tell you what that's going to look like. Every spinal cord injury is like a thumbprint. So each one is different. Mm. They can't tell you, but they, they go, they use words like 99%. So he had surgery that He had surgery that night. That night and they tell you, you know, I just, I Who still. Who was the surgeon? I have no idea. So you don't know any details. Does he remember the event, Will? So in mindfulness, we talk about that there's only the present moment. I, 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 really str- I really thought about that a lot during my mindfulness practice around how mindfulness is really never looking outside of that moment, never looking back and never looking forward. And I can't tell you what happened at the beach. I've never asked anyone. I don't know what it looks like. I don't, there's nothing to be gained from going back to that moment. So you consciously avoid Yeah. I don't, yeah, because I can't change it. What, what, there's no lessons in it for me. There's nothing. It just is going to bring me suffering that I don't need. What about Nick? Um, I don't know. I, I, we don't discuss, I'm sure on some level he questions if I'd gone straight when Will asked me because when Will was waiting to be picked up, he hadn't even been in the water and he thought, oh, I'll just do one jump because I'm waiting for dad and that was uh, the one dive that he broke his neck on. And, you know, people question if that, like, why well, you should be talking about those things and it's like, for what purpose? And is Nick, are you on the same page? Are you aligned with this way of this mindfulness, this approach to life and the story? I don't know. I can't answer that. I think you deal with trauma how you need to deal with trauma. And the one thing with spinal cord injury, I mean, I don't know. Thankfully, I don't have a child who has an illness. But the, definitely the thing with spinal cord injury is that you get pulled into, it's equivalent of three full-time jobs, carers, equipment. We had to renovate a house. Like within 
your child is in ICU and you're in your home with disability architects. It's a craziest thing. And so where other people perhaps have time to process and connect over that, you are just thrown into, we need to find equipment, carers, how the NDIS didn't exist, will fell between the gap of the old funding and NDIS. So we're madly fundraising. It's like you don't have time to... So did Nick just shift into Nick, we, Mr. Fix-It? Yeah, we shifted very quickly. We got a committee of people and we allocated different roles to those people. And Nick very much took over that funding. He now manages the NDIS. It's enormous. It's, it's enormous. And I think when people look at families who are dealing with these challenges, they're thinking from it as a perspective of like, oh, the grief and the sadness and the trauma. It's like, we don't even have time for that. We're in the logistics. Mm. Like we are just trying to enable Will to have a roof over his head and care. I mean, running full-time 24-7 care roster is, that's a full-time job in itself, let alone how to pay for it and Every piece of equipment that Will has has to be automated. Can you imagine how many times we are fixing things and things are broken so Will is in a car and he can't get out of the car because the ramp broke and, you know, it is constant. And I have he's no not words. a kid. He's an adult. He's not a kid. He's, he's an a adult. big adult. Yeah. yeah. And going back to the hospital, how long was he in hospital for? Well, he was supposed to be in hospital for, you know, up to sort of nine months, if not longer, and Will Will hated the hospital. You know, something pivotal happened in the ambulance after Will's accident that they were heading to the Royal Talbot where spinal cord injury goes and stroke and you might be able to explain what the Royal Talbot is better than me, but it's like a rehabilitation Mm. hospital. And as he was en route to that, a social worker stepped in. He was two weeks Shav, his 14th birthday, and she said, no, he's 13. He has to go to the Royal Children's Hospital. So we went to the Royal Children's Hospital, and that was closer to home. It was far a, a nicer space, like just the Royal Children's Hospital puts a lot of funding into the actual environment of the space, and when you are there for a long time, that makes sense. You need it. An yeah. enormous Every room difference. Looks out onto a garden. Yeah, like natural light. You might think, oh, that's a waste of money, but when you Means are in trauma, that is yeah. like yeah. really necessary. And it was on a train line, so a lot of Will's friends could come in. Mm. You know, Will's after, and these kids were in year eight. They'd just started year eight, so it was like their first sense of independence that they were allowed by their parents to go and see Will. They would never be allowed to catch a train <laughs> to the city, but oh, to see Will. So we had hordes of children. Half the time I think, does Will even know these kids? Or they're just <laughs> like, hey, we're going to see Will Murray. <laughs> and so him being at the Royal Children's Hospital, the environment was a lot nicer. But they're not equipped for spinal cord injury like a Royal Talbot. So there was a lot of challenges in that hospital around them having the most recent knowledge mm. of spinal cord injury and, the, and equipment. And we were in contact with America already around 
you know, active-based rehabilitation and, you know, I was listening to your podcast with that beautiful mum of three autistic children talking about early intervention, same with spinal cord injury. Whilst mm. you've still got muscle bulk and nerves, like you want to keep them moving and keep them alive. So we were pushing the children's hospital a lot and that was quite agitating for the relationship. And so it was always in our mind that we wanted to get Will out of hospital as soon as possible so we could get on with dealing with spinal cord injury in a different way. So we got him out fairly early, like in four months rather than sort of... That is very quick. Yeah, really quick. Maybe five, I can't quite remember. And, you know, great credit to the hospital. They really supported us. I think they thought we were mad, but they supported us or were too scared to get in our way. (laughs) Either one. Will developed a chest infection within 24 hours of being home. And chest infection is, um, you know, deadly to someone with spinal cord injury. And it was a real, for me, it was like, I can't believe this. Like I have against the hospital wishes said, no, we've got this, we can do this. And I haven't. And I can't believe what I've done. But the stubbornness of not wanting to be wrong, we just, I got onto the Cystic Fibrosis Society and got machines and, you know, the whole works. And we got Will through that. And Will's never been back to hospital since other than... Never been back. He had a nerve transplant that he had done, but other than that, he's never been back to hospital since. Let's move to Will. Yeah. We've not spoken much no, about him. we haven't. So you describe him at the age of 13, almost 14, as popular, busy, everyone knows him, good at everything, good at every sport. We're talking, is he going to go pro? You've got to have a very impressive mindset. Yes. Hardworking, willing to put in the training, etc., push through adversity. And we're not even talking about serious adversity yeah. yet. Did he continue that mindset? Did he bring that to his rehabilitation and life after the episode? Yeah. You know, Will, um, when he was in the hospital, so he nearly drowned at the beach and he had nightmares and post-traumatic stress about drowning. And the one thing with Will is he never wanted to be alone, not for a second in that room. And I think that is part of when you've lost your ability to move your body, how frightening. Like I can't, if anything goes wrong, I can't. I think it's a survival mechanism for a human to say, I I can't move, like don't leave this room because if something bad happens, I'm stuck here. And so when you would, Nick and I would take it in terms of staying in the hospital and his post-traumatic stress would happen at night and he would get very anxious before bedtime and nightmares. And I tried to speak to him about it one time and I said, well, what do you do when you're feeling like that? And he said, I feel the mattress under, like well, he can't feel much, but I, 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 he can feel his shoulders. Like I feel the mattress under my back and um, I feel the pillow under my head and I tell myself I'm not in the water, I, I'm in the bed. Now, this kid's 14. That is ultimately when you teach someone mindfulness what you are trying to get them to be able to do, just to be, to ground themselves in what is happening in the moment. And we use our senses to do that. What can I feel? What can I hear? 
you know, we want people to be able to sit into a moment and say, all that's happening for me right now is my bum's on this chair, my feet's on the floor. And I hadn't taught him that because I don't think I really knew it. Even though I was a mindfulness practice, a practitioner, I don't think, whilst I knew the theory of it, but here this human was just using it to stay present in the moment and stay out of the horrific stories of what must be going on. And that was sort of will, just has this ability to just be in the moment and not allow himself to go out of that moment too much. I've always said that our children are our greatest teachers Mm. and there's no question, I I assume you will agree, that children are the greatest practitioners of mindfulness in the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, incredibly so. Um, But it's almost like he's taken it to a next level uh, involving maturity at such a young age. Yeah, and I wonder if that's a survival thing. I'm not sure. I wonder if that is in the human system, that when our backs are so against the wall, we do have that capability. I'm not sure the answer to that. But he seems to be able to do that or certainly master that in those early days. I still think about it a lot. I still think about how he must process that. And people are like, don't you ask him? Don't you talk about it with him? And it's a tricky one because who am I to put my perception of the situation onto him? And I don't feel I have a right to say, this is so bad. How are you coping with it? How do you not go to these stories? Because what if he's not? Mm. What if he hasn't labelled it like that and that's not his experience and I'm putting my experience and my lens onto him when that's not his story, that's my story. And you don't want him to imbibe that I don't want him to buy truth. that, yeah. Very, straight away, we did not ever call him quadriplegic. We still to this day don't. We say he has a spinal cord injury. He still will. He has a broken neck. Some people have a broken leg. Some people... Uh, was there a moment, a, piv- a, a, a specific moment where the medical team broke the news to you, broke the news mm. to Will? Do you, were there, like, do you remember the exact conversation and what his response was? So Will was in a coma straight after the accident. They put you into an induced coma after the surgery. So it's not like you ever come out of surgery. You go from surgery straight into an induced coma because his lungs had taken on a lot of water and that develops pneumonia. And so there were a lot of nights where it was like, is he even going to make the night? So pretty quickly, you're not not really thinking about quadriplegia. You're thinking about life or death. Yeah. And um, it's a really difficult one whether what choice is better? I know that sounds horrific, but as a parent, it's like, I want my child to live, but I also don't want my child to live like that. Like that. So were you in the same moment thinking, I don't know if my child's going to survive the night and I don't know what I'm going to do if my child does. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the best option for him to survive the night. And then once they're like, hey, he's going to live, it's like now we have to wake him up and tell him he's never going to feel anything or move or walk or do anything like that. And did that moment happen? That moment happened. I couldn't be there for that moment. Did Nick? Nick. He was phenomenal. He was, that was where he really, he had an ability to really 
be very calm in that intensive care. With me, I felt it, found it very difficult because you think it's all about telling them that they're going to not walk again, but it's sort of not. When when you break your neck, your body is really struggling. Like you've got phantom pains. It's like your legs are over here and your body's over there. You can't, you've, he's still got pneumonia and he still has to be on this cough machine and, you know, you get infections very quickly. You can't regulate your temperature. So whilst we're thinking, oh, our child's not going to ever walk again, really you're deep in this very unwell child who is in pain. And I mean, when I had the courage to go into the hospital room in the ICU and Will had just come out of a coma. You know, I remember Will just looking at me, pleading with me and said, mum, you know, just make this go away. Like, take me away. He knew what I did with athletes. He knew I do a lot of visualisation. Hold on. Was Will saying, take this away, I want to go back to my normal life or was he saying, end my life? No, I don't know, but I think how I interpreted it at the time, it was just like, take me. Fix this. Yeah, like just give me a break from everything that's going on. I don't know. I've never thought too deeply about it, but the way I interpreted that was take me, you know, I do a lot of visualisations with athletes and so I just sort of did a visualisation of him coming out of that moment, really. I mean, that sounds so weird to listeners, but to me, I sort of knew what he was asking and I was able to do that. There's something about you that strikes me. Oh, God. I'm almost jealous of it. Oh, don't be. I ask you a lot of questions and your response a lot of the time is, I don't know, which it seems to me like you've got this phenomenal skill of not overthinking things. I just don't think that uh, what is to be gained from that. Is this you, have you, or is this Emma always, or is this because of your training? Is it because of the people you work with? Is it because of your, how do you have this ability to not overthink? Because that is like such a common curse. Yeah. I think what I have mastered is the art of acceptance very quickly and that acceptance is the ability to truly accept that you cannot control what's going on for us. And I say we need to accept the external environment. So I can't control what my boss is doing, what my manager is saying, that that child is saying that mean thing to my other child or that my child didn't get picked in the netball team. But we also have to accept the internal struggle, that it's normal to feel like that, it's okay to feel like that, that it's, you know, not wrong to feel like this, but this is just feelings and accept them as just energy in our body. And I think for me, I'm not trying to get into a state of happiness or joy or, you know, this is amazing. I'm just trying to step from suffering to just be in the pain without fixing it or having a solution to it. But I'm not in the suffering. That's what acceptance stops, stops the suffering. And the suffering comes from 
that. Fighting it. And fighting yeah. it. Why? And if only, and I can't believe that, and that's so hard, and that's not fair, and why didn't I do this, and if only I do that. That is where suffering comes from. I sit in pain about Will's accident every single day. I sit in pain still about having a stillborn but all of the time. you don't perseverate on guilt in the what if. No. Is he angry at me? Yeah. There's none of that. No. Why didn't I? If only. It's not fair. It's like I fundamentally know for sure that there's nothing to be gained from that. There's no answers in it. It doesn't help me. So I just make a choice to accept that I can't control that. And that just is what it is. I love that. So when you sort of said, you know, you have a podcast and it's you with experts, like, yeah, I'm the expert of acceptance. Like, it, it's, I'm, I'm not the expert at gratitude. Like, I find gratitude challenging because, you know, I'm not grateful that... Will's life looks like it looks, like I'm pissed off about that, but I accept that I can't change it. So I find gratitude, when people throw that at me, really difficult. Oh, at least he's alive. I find that really painful, but I find acceptance really doable. And liberating. Yeah. And... I think an important point to make about acceptance is it's not, you don't arrive at acceptance just one day and you don't do it once and then you arrive at a place of acceptance. You have to choose acceptance sometimes in every single moment you walk into, sometimes just once a day, but I have to keep choosing acceptance. Is it like a muscle? The more you yeah. do it, the easier it gets? Yeah, yeah. So have I accepted Will's accident in totality, no, but in this moment I just choose that I can't control it, it's here, I can't change it. I also accept that this is actually not my journey, it's Will's journey and I can't take it away from him. I sort of don't have a right to take it away from him. I'm not sure why it was given to him, but they're his lessons and I don't have a right to take them from him. We've explored Will prior to that the spinal cord injury and the early aftermath. Where is he now? Tell, paint a picture. He's 21. Yeah. What does he look like? What is his day-to-day functioning? What are his challenges? What's, his, what's the fun? Yeah. His social group, you know, gosh, we, we look at young boys, you know, 13-year-old boys, and we bemoan them and we... Ah, oh, and then they get to 15 and they're horrible and they're this and they're that and they're everything. But his social group have not put a foot wrong. They, they have like, if adults could learn off them, it would be incredible. They have been so loyal and accepting and inclusive with never a lecture, never a, not one parent has ever said to those boys, you should include Will or you should do this. They just want to. They just want to. They never look at Will as anything but Will and no one has taught them to do that. They have just done that. And I think we need to give our young people more credit and more space to just 
really like lean into things and and not interfere so much with with it all I think but straight away I wanted to make sure he had a career and do this and you know I still hadn't learned that lesson but you know we said you know he loved footy so we'll get him an internship at Richmond where I was working and he can do that and and I would sit there and I would watch him and I think oh this is not really it's not he's not really loving this but I could see he was sort of doing it because he was trying to tick the box for us. We were doing it because we were trying to make ourselves feel better Mm. that he was going to have a future. And then it came to a point where I said to Will, you know, what are you doing with footy this year? Oh, you know, and he was sort of dancing around it. And I said, well, if it doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. Like, we're on this earth once. If it doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. And he said, I don't want to do it. What does bring him joy? He wants to be really good at business. I think in his mind, he was the best at sport and people looked up to him for that. And I think that's what he's trying to do with business and making money. And he's learning to trade because trading gives him that competitiveness and that Mm. risk and that thrill and that danger that he had in sport. It's Um, a cognitive version of all of those physical... Yeah, yeah. Attributes. And I have to catch myself from like he's not independent enough and he's not doing this enough and he's not doing that enough. And I just have to think it's at his pace. So he, what's his function physically? What does he have? He has biceps. And because he was so young, like you will be able to explain it from a medical perspective, but when you like your hand falls, you get a natural grip to mm-hmm. it. It's very weak grip, but it's enough that he can pick up a pen and use a screen. But when we moved out of the family home, he decided he preferred living with a carer than living with the whole family. So he still lives in the family home with carers and we are building him a house that um, is more suitable for him to be in one home and the carer to be on another on the property. And is he in a wheelchair that he, he controls? Yes, he should. If he's listening, he won't listen to this, so I can say this. <laughs> he should have a motor on it, but to him that makes him really disabled. So he doesn't have a motor on it and that in, impacts his independence a lot. So he's driving... But when he gets to where he needs to go, he doesn't have the strength to wheel himself like from the car into, you know, the house. So someone has to go and meet him and do that. He would be far more independent if he had some sort of motor on his wheelchair, but he won't do it. And he can feed himself? He can feed himself. Like we cut up his food and he can use a fork, but prefers to use his hands. But yes, he can feed himself. What you learn very quickly with quadriplegia is that it's not the walking, it's not the legs, it's the hands and it's the toileting. It's the... It's the little things you don't think, yeah. ...that they would want back more than anything. If I could close my eyes and dream of what I wanted for Will, you know, we know people with spinal cord injury who can stand to go to the bathroom, they're still in a wheelchair to move around that they can stand to get into their car, stand to get dressed, stand to go to the toilet, that would be heaven. So he doesn't want his story to be about disability advocacy or the focus on what he can do. He just wants to 
be well, successful yep. because he's successful. Yeah, that's right. And that's his choice. What would you say to a parent who finds themselves in this same situation at the early stage? I think before the parent gets to this stage, I want to speak to parents about that acceptance piece because I look at, and I think it's also a product of having older and younger kids, that what you notice is when they reach year 12, all of a sudden all of those sports teams you're worried about and the the fight they had with the kid, you know, their best friend that you're worried about and the teacher that wasn't as good as you hoped they were going to be, it all means nothing. Like your kid, once they get to that age, goes on a path that maybe you didn't even see, maybe you saw, but you have no control over it. And I think if we just loosened the grip, softened the grip, our experience of parenthood would just be so much more joyful and there would be a whole lot less suffering because I'm acutely aware that you actually don't need to find yourself in a place of trauma to find parenting really scary and anxiety-producing and difficult and, you know, the angst parents are in around their kid being okay and not being hurt. And so I want to be that person and say, catch yourself and loosen your grip and know that it will pass. Tell yourself over and over, this will pass. I don't need to sit in this. I don't need to find a solution to this. I don't need to react to this. I don't need to follow this up. I just need to need let to it be. It. I don't need to control it. Because it will pass. It will be nothing in their life in possibly days' time. But we keep it alive. We give just oxygen to the fire all of the time as parents. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing, I quite often talk to parents who find themselves in the early days of trauma, whether their child has been diagnosed with a genetic condition that now they're never going to walk or feed themselves. Some The thing the people that come to me and I'm very, I, I'm very clear. I never say to a parent that around gratitude or it will be okay or that I really lean into the fact that, yeah, this is hard. This is sucks. Like it's hard and your pain is valid and it's normal and it's okay to feel that pain and you're not trying to get to a place of seeing the lessons or being grateful or, or just being happy that you've got this child in your arms. That is too far a place to get to. If you can just get to a place where you accept that it's here, I can't control it, I can't change it, I can't give it back, I'm not okay with it but it's here, then that's growth. That's moving you from suffering into a little bit less suffering. Closer to acceptance. Yeah. And that just start there. And then I get them to ask themselves, what can I do in this moment? What's one thing I can do in this moment? Because I'm so focused on everything I, that's been taken from me and that I can't do and that's so bad. And it's, it's like, stop, accept. I can't change it. Take a breath. What's just one thing I can do in this moment? Oh, I can just feel the hug of my child. That's enough. Like, just get that bit right. Emma Murray, thank you so much. Thank you. For joining us. 
Emma, the founder of High Performance Mindfulness, we will put links to your work, your incredible work in the show notes. To enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. For any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. And just before you go, we will be having a small summer break. So until next time, stay safe.